Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, I'm joined by Shai Mashali. Hey, Shai, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Leo. Thank you for having me. Great being here. This is going to be a very special episode because, as you might have heard, I'm recovering from COVID. So if I sound slightly congested in the audio today, you'll know why. Uh, luckily, I'm doing okay. I got my hot tea this morning. So thank you so much for joining me, joining on for today's episode. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad to hear and see that uh, you're feeling better. That's uh, very reassuring. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's coming around. It's coming around. So I've been wanting to have you on for a while. Like I've been trying to get another opportunity to do uh, a reactive uh, episode. And then I heard about this book that you, you tweeted about that you're doing with Ray Winderlich on Expert Swift. And I'm like, oh, good. I want to do a topic on it. Adva- well, it was advanced Swift at the time, but same idea. What's advanced Swift? But before we get into that, I, I want to let you introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, sounds good. So uh, my name is Shai. I'm from Israel and uh, I do iOS, I guess, for about 10 plus years at this point. I started about at, at iOS 4. I uh, used to do eight years of uh, backend and web development before that and uh, kind of switched over at some uh, random part of my life. Um, currently doing iOS for Monday.com and doing a lot of open source work on ArcSwift, uh, combined related project, reactive stuff, as you can imagine, uh, and uh, writing and editing a lot of books for uh, Ray Wenderlich as well, uh, which has been a ton of fun as well. Uh, some of them are the combined book, uh, which is the first one that was released uh, probably on iOS on the iOS community. And we have this new Expert Swift book, and we have another upcoming book, which we'll probably talk about a bit later. Um, and uh, that's uh, mostly it. So let's get into it. What what does that mean, Expert Swift, to you? Yeah, I mean, I'll start by saying that, yeah, the, the initial version of the book was called Advanced Swift. We just had a conflict with the naming that was super accidental and unfortunate, so we decided to rename it to the last second. So for me specifically, I think that when you start learning Swift, you kind of learn the language features and how to build apps, uh, and you do that for a while. And after a couple of years, especially as you switch jobs and work on a lot of different projects and work with a lot of different people, you kind of gain this experience of how you can leverage more advanced language features to really structure your app differently or think about things differently. Uh, And that's kind of what I have in mind when I think about expert Swift and advanced Swift topics, just kind of topics that usually don't get enough don't get enough credit and definitely don't get enough book coverage, in my opinion. Like topics like reactive or topics like uh, codable, going like a bit deeper into it, even though there are uh, books about that topic, we kind of wanted to do an entire book that if you already feel pretty proficient with iOS and Swift development, but kind of want to take that next step, that you could kind of dive into that. One of the traps that those of us who are software developers can run into over engineering things, do you think there's some traps with being an expert in this stuff where you start throwing in associated types and like overdoing it and then making it a challenge for more novice developers to pick pick up your code and like maintain it, I guess? Yeah, I think it's definitely a challenge. I mean, for one side, I think reactive uh, goes into that area a lot of times. People would sometimes say right. that our Swift code bases are a bit uh, heavier to to learn through. So I think part of being expert or more advanced developer is also being a pragmatic developer, trying to understand what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Sometimes you might want to do something that isn't the optimum, pure Swift code amazingness, however you would call it, but it makes much more sense for your fellow developers. And I think that with time, as you uh, as you work with a lot of companies and you work with, on a lot of projects, you kind of develop these instincts. You can't always be a purist, so it's really a balancing act. Definitely, a lot of tools in any pro- like in any programming language, but especially with Swift, that the number of uh, kind of language features uh, grew exponentially over the past few years. That you kind of need to be careful reaching for the fancy new tool every time, just for the sake of using it. So. I agree there is some problem there, but it really depends on the team and how do you define yourself as a developer and if you can kind of 
go beyond just saying, I want to use the latest features and think about why am I using this and who would be the consumers of this, uh, of these APIs that I'm designing right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's a good way to put it. And just not like being a good, being an expert means being a good teacher too. And being yeah. like, okay, this is a, pa- this is a pattern. Like now do you understand like how, how we apply it? It is really like the, the word senior in, uh, in titles, right? Like people think senior right. is just being advanced in your, in your uh, profession, but it's really about, can you be a good mentor to people that just started doing whatever you do? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, let's get into the one, um, the first big topic that you covered in the book, um, Codable. I guess there's kind of layers to being advanced at Codable, right? Because you can, uh, you could do stuff like coding keys. You could do stuff like custom encoders and decoders, custom, you know, Inits and decoding. What what do you think are the good first steps for any anybody who's going to really get into Codable, and why is it beneficial to them and their team? That's a really that's a really good question. I think that first of all, Codable is is a pretty amazing tool. I mean, I'm now working on different projects where I'm using YAML, and I use the same code uh, like enco- uh, encodable decodable conformances, and just switch the decoder, and everything works, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So I think th- that. Specifically with this book, we kind of plan on doing chapters that go 20 pages a chapter on these topics. And every time we try to make the 20 page chapter, we accidentally made 40 pages because there's so much to learn about. (laughs) Yeah. Like this entire book is full of 40 page chapters, which is like twice the maximum we usually allow to write in in, in Ray books. Yeah, which is which is pretty funny. I mean, we we always uh, laugh. Uh, our, Our editors always laugh that we went crazy on this one. But to, to your specific question, I think that the, really the leap between just knowing the basic codable stuff, which is I'm going to make a struct, conform to codable, and the fields are going to match exactly to what my server returns, is really anything beyond that. And I think that's really reality, right? Most of the time, our API isn't going to be necessarily, like the backend APIs aren't going to be necessarily aligned with what we want to achieve in our clients. Uh, a lot of right. times we, we might want to decode things into primitive types like uh, like an enum or something that doesn't necessarily make sense in the structure that it comes from the from the database. Sometimes the keys aren't like entirely aren't going to match, or the structure is entirely not going to match. I think those are the areas where codable like you can get fancier with codable. Like you can work with generic decodable structures, or you, or you can work with custom coding keys or custom coding strategies. And I think those are the areas where it's interesting. And really, if we, to the second question, I think of why even bother with Codable, I think we pretty much answered that. It's a really relatively simple way to define how to go in and out of of a sum type. And the fact you can have many variations of Codable for JSON, for YAML, for binary JSON, if uh, you're on the MongoDB team, that exists as well. So I think it's really nice that you have a single interface to kind of unify all of these decodings and encodings. What do you think, at what point is it worth just having an abstraction built on top of a type as opposed to custom decoding, encoding of whatever you communicate with the server with? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think that it's pretty, I don't know if it's pretty common, but I think that it's easy to bump into these scenarios where you would try to make a decodable conformance and you would just hit a wall because it just wasn't necessarily meant to do the thing you are trying to do at the moment. And at those moments, maybe you would just make a a custom initializer and decode just something uh, a bit higher level or decode it into a a manual dictionary if you really have to and and really go deep into the data. But I think those are less common scenarios. I think most, I mean, most most responses that I know can can easily be not well, I mean, not easily, easy or hard, depending on, on the response, can be decoded into into uh, Swift types. I mean, in the book as well, we go kind of from three different responses where the last one is just insane and incomprehensible <laughs> and doesn't really align with any RESTful API standards. It's just kind of a mess. And, and we can get that to go into Swift as well without manually doing too much stuff. So it's really about figuring out what are the the points of friction and how can you solve it inside the decodable conformance uh, right. frame? Yeah. But I agree that sometimes it makes more sense to just use a higher abstraction if you really uh, 
or even a lower abstraction, right? If you really don't have a, yeah. uh, a choice to do so. What other things do you think people, well, developers just don't know about when it comes to Codable um, and custom custom stuff with Codable? I think that there are a lot of small uh, small corners. I think that, for example, like custom decoding strategies are a bit a bit of a, a of a weird thing that uh, is easily kind of skipped by developers. But it's very common that you might need that and solve it in a different manual way. Also, another one would be coding keys. I mean, sometimes you would have a you would have a coding key, and that would need to be a finite set, right? Like an enum of coding keys. And sometimes your server response do- like doesn't work that way. Maybe your keys are dynamic, so there are ways around that as well, like making custom coding keys and and trying to figure out how coding keys work to begin with. I think those are kind of hidden details that aren't uh, discussed too much. So as far as like coding keys, a couple of questions that I had was like, when is it worth using custom coding keys as opposed to like just changing the encoder to say, hey, don't use snake, use camel or whatever, or like use uppercase or lowercase? Because there's a few options in the actual decoder where you can change that as opposed to changing in the coding keys. Yeah, so, so there we're uh, when you're talking about that, you're talking about what's called a key decoding strategy, which is like the strategy that the decoder uses to decide how do I take the key that comes from the server and match the name of that one to the name of a property of a st- on a struct, for example. And, and the default is just using uh, the, the, the regular uh, naming, as far as I, as I know. And the most popular one after that would be like convert from snake case, probably. I don't remember the exact same, uh, the exact case on that, but it's probably converting from snake case. Uh, and I think those are two like of the most common cases, but they're not always enough. For example, there are still some APIs that might have mixed conventions, which is like super painful, but it happens uh, where you would have an API that um, kind of works with both of these variations at different times. You might have uh, like APIs work with Pascal case, APIs work with Kebab case. There are so many weird variations. And I think those are the scenarios where that happens. And if we're talking about coding keys specifically, as I mentioned before, sometimes you, you can't know in advance what are going to be, like what's going to be the final list of keys that are going to be in that uh, structure that you're trying to decode. Sometimes, like there's a, an example in the book where the keys are a list of dynamic dates. So not only you have to figure out the keys at runtime, you also have to decode these dates as actual uh, Swift dates. So it's it can be a pretty challenging task depending on the uh, on on the response, and I think a lot of teams sometimes build their own server interfaces, what's called a BFF, to to kind of go around that back and forth front end. Yeah, but we can also solve solve these uh, solve these things on the front end as well, in my opinion. So with the the case with the date, is that is that a key amongst other keys, or is it like could you just use a dictionary of date to whatever the value is? Yeah. For so for example, it's uh, you can you can do a bunch of things. It depends on the example. In this specific example, it's uh, it's like a, a dictionary from dates to structs, and you want this you would want the struct to contain the date as well. So it's a bit uh, a bit complex. I think the the example itself is actually public on the Ray Wenderlich uh, repo. Actually, all of the materials are public. The book the book them, themselves cost uh, money, but the all of the code and stuff is public on the GitHub repo. So if anyone's interested in the example, they can poke at that there for sure. Yeah, and we'll post a link to that in the show notes as well. So let's jump into another topic that I just talked about in the last episode with Daniel. And that was dealing with Objective C. I'm curious about the inspiration for this, first of all. But then, like, why is it why is it important? I mean, I know why it's important, but I want to let you let you my perspective uh, on it weigh yeah. in on why Objective C is so important still in 2021. I think that, like, for me, it's two questions: it's like, why is Objective C so important, and why is it so important to make it work well together with Swift? So, for the first question. Objective-C is still not dead, as opposed to what many uh, relatively newcomers to Swift like to think. It's in every big 
In most big uh, um, apps that exist for more than three, four, five years, there is a, a substantial amount of Objective-C code. I think that almost every every job I've done, except for one or two, had a lot of Objective-C code uh, to this day. And I think it's can good you, to... Can you disclose if Monday, do they have... Do you guys have... Yeah, we have, we have a lot of Objective-C code. Yeah, for sure. Okay, okay. I mean, we did, okay. we did a lot of cleanup there, but I, I can easily tell you, like that a lot of big apps out there would have, uh, I'm sure Slack has it. Like even consider like Twitter has a lot of it as well. I'm sure. I mean, just consider open source projects by these companies, a lot like LinkedIn have their own open source project for doing some stuff. That's an objective C. So you can assume their code base has a lot of objective C as well. So I don't necessarily say that you need to develop new things in, in objective C. It is a relatively older language and there are newer, better, statically type tools to deal with with uh, modern tasks. But um, it is still a, a lot of code out there that uses it. And the second thing is that up until I think a year or two ago, and probably until this day, Objective-C is still the, considered the best way to ship SDKs by third-party vendors because of the fact that uh, earlier on you couldn't build a framework with uh, with binary module stability in Swift. And that changed okay, a yeah. few Swift, a few Swift versions ago, right? So, with the XC frameworks, exactly. So, so you can have the you can really move it between different versions of Swift, which made it super cumbersome to work with. I saw a couple of companies that were courageous enough to try this, and eventually they would just need to ship a new version of the SDK every minor patch or every new version of Swift. Just and and the consumer would have to pick the right version for their project, uh, or if you have a hundred developers and each of them works on a different version of Xcode for some reason, then you're in a huge pile of trouble. So not the best experience as well. So those are reasons I think were like really solid reasons to use Objective-C even to this day. And about interop, I think it's like just a super interesting topic because there is so there are so many tools to, to kind of blur the line between Objective-C and Swift today so that you can build APIs that when you use them inside Swift, you wouldn't know their Objective-C unless you really go into the header files. I think that today we have enough uh, enough good tooling to do that. And it's it's really exciting because before that, you would do a lot of uh, a lot of wrappers in Swift to wrap Objective-C types or stuff like that. And today you need to do that less often, I think, which is uh, pretty great. Yeah. So I that's like pretty much my day-to-day bread and butter is migrating objective C over to Swift right now. And like there, there are a lot of first steps that you can make in your objective C code to make it easy to move it over to Swift. And um, the, the lowest hanging fruit, in my opinion, is nullability. Do you want to explain what that means exactly? Yeah, sure. In Swift, everyone that kind of learns Swift takes for granted the fact that you have a type called optional. And that's this question mark thing you put on types. And that basically means that the value I might or might... Say that- that was like the first big like when you when Swift came out. That was like the first barrier that a lot of Objective C folks yeah. had to get over. Is why do I have to put this exclamation mark, mark everywhere? Question mark. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to. say No, that. you're right. It's like it's like trying to throw a, Java, a JavaScript developer into TypeScript. Like, why do I have to put types everywhere? It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's yeah. a type. It's a type yeah. language. That's exactly it. So. In Swift, you can annotate something with a question mark that would make it optional. That means that the value might be there or it might not be there. It's optional, obviously, and uh, and that's kind of what makes Swift nice and 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 like powerful in a strictly typed language that you can design these concepts. Uh, Objective C wasn't built around that idea uh, from the from the compiler level. It's more of a runtime thing. Uh, that means that nullability in Objective C could just randomly happen. You don't really have a way of knowing that because in Directive-C, when you define a property, for example, and you access it, you don't have any you don't have any compiler features that make you unwrap that value, for example. You just access it. You might crash if you don't do the proper checks uh, before. Uh, that's basically how it works. And then later on, when Swift came out, we got all these nice uh, annotations uh, for Objective-C to help bridge that gap. Like NS, uh, NS, uh, like nullable or non-null or assume, uh, begin assume null and all of these things. And that kind of uh, aims to uh, both for Objective-C and Swift, actually, to say this specific property might not be there. Like trying to achieve the same notion of the type system uh, 
on Objective-C. And I think that's really cool. It's super painful to do that migration because once you mark a single property, it makes you do all of them. And it if lets you, have, you know. It lets yeah. you know, yeah. It lets you know. So if you have like a huge model uh, or a huge class, which is what most Objective-C developers would have, and you want to just kind of work on that one property, you're, you're pretty much going to get a bunch of warnings unless you don't fix everything. But so I, I actually appreciate I appreciate that that discipline because like I mean that's kind of the gold standard where I want to head and if it means more exclamation marks at least I know like what I can fix in the future so yeah so there's like nullability on uh, parameters nullability on return types and then there's nullability also uh, when it comes to like properties uh, where you would have like a property in Objective C you'd say strong or assign or whatever. You could also say nullability in there as well. I'm trying to think where, where else, but yeah, that's the, like pretty much the idea. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in closure arguments, stuff like that. Right. It doesn't do anything on the compiler side. Like if you throw in a null, it's still, you know, it is, it could still be null even if you. Yeah, but I, I do, be, I do believe though that in Objective C, I don't remember off the top of my head because I didn't mess with it for a few weeks now, but I do remember that if you would, if you would define some field as nullable, then even in, in Objective C, it would warn you to check if it is null before accessing it because you did annotate it with that non-null argument, for example. Okay, okay. Does that make sense then? Yeah. The other thing that I didn't even know was there in Objective-C, and I don't know how late that's come in, was generics. That's another thing that's been super helpful because, um, you know, even I've been saying, I remember the early, early, early days of Swift, we didn't have generics and we were still using NS array and NS set and NS mutable and all that stuff. And casting everything. Yeah. 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 Right. And then uh, they added generics to Swift and to Objective C. Uh, and that's a big help because, like, now you know. <laughs> It's not strong typed. I don't want to use that word because, you know, Objective-C is a different type of language, but like that helps Swift developer a lot in knowing like what actually is going on underneath the hood with whatever your collection or generic type is. Yeah, I agree. It also uh, helps inside of Objective-C because uh, since they added that syntax, then also when you are enumerating an array, you would get the typed version of the object inside of that closure uh, or block if we're talking Objective C here. The, so it's pretty it's pretty useful. I think um, I think it was a huge addition. I mean they they call it lightweight generics, which is a bit funny because it does almost everything that the regular generics do. I mean you can't. I think the big upside, like downside, is you can't extend them in this and, and compose them in the same ways you can inside Swift, but. But if you want to make a class that's just generic over some type, then you can do that pretty easily with Objective-C, which I agree you couldn't do a while back. Yeah, it's a pretty good feature. I want to thank the sponsor of today's episode, RevenueCat. RevenueCat has made it easier for app developers to build, analyze, and grow in-app purchases and subscriptions on iOS, Android, and the web. There's no server code required. With a few lines of code, get in-app purchase infrastructure, analytics, and integrations without managing servers. When you're building an app, you want to focus on your app, the design, the look, and being able to take a look at how your users are using your app. What RevenueCat does is it takes that burden away. It makes in-app purchases easier. With their automated reporting tools, you get out-of-the-box analytics for key subscription metrics. This gives you the insight you need to grow your app. There are subscription analytics, customer lists, filters, and segments, and all sorts of plugins with different APIs so you can get started and analyze your customers and get a hold of them today. Focus on your app and your design. Go to RevenueCat.com to check out how to get started today, as well as their YouTube channel in the link below. They show you how to get started, whether you want to use a CocoaPod or Swift package, and integrate RevenueCat into your app. Also, you'll want to check out my episode with Andy who talks about some of the new stuff that's come out with StoreKit 2. Now, it may make it a lot easier for you, but RevenueCat is going to make sure that you have that long-term growth and being able to look at how your app works and how subscriptions can be used and utilized for greater income. Try RevenueCat today, and thank you again, RevenueCat, for sponsoring today's episode. What am I missing? Nullability, generics... Was there anything else you talk about in the book that you would recommend folks add? Yeah, I mean, 
I think that one of the, the there's a lot to cover there. Uh, Forty pages of content, as I mentioned, for each of these topics. <laughs> but uh, I mean, a- another big one is just Anna Swift name, which is like super super useful. There are yep. a lot of uh, hidden corners there. But yeah, I mean, you want to make your like. I think that the runtime and the Swift compiler are doing a pretty solid job converting these names, but sometimes it's really hard to figure out. So it's important that you know that and the Swift name uh, exists there, so you can give the proper rename name for your Swift. yeah, just rename for your uh, properties, methods, whatever. There's also NS Refined for Swift, which is super useful. Which is basically, for example, you make a class, and that class. Makes sense for Objective C, but it really doesn't make sense for structs. For for sorry for Swift, so you can say that it's refined for Swift, and then it would hide it inside Swift, so you can make your own version of it uh, that's specific to Swift. Uh, there are a lot of useful little hidden features uh, around that that uh, I suggest learning about. It's really interesting. So refined, you you can hide an Objective C class. Yeah, like you would you would hide it from Swift. Swift, like if you would try to type the class name or object name, whatever, it would not show it in autocomplete. And it does this, wow. ni- it, it, it does this nice trick where it, if it hides it uh, behind two underscores. So if you have something called person, you can in Swift write underscore, underscore person, and you can access it, but you will not get any autocompletion for that, which is really, really interesting. I mean, uh, when I first learned about it, I found it super, like I'm, I'm doing something really pretty fancy with it in the book. Like we're taking taking this uh, Objective-C SDK and we're wrapping it inside Swift UI observable object. And we're doing this by refining the inner class, which is really, really powerful. Yeah, it's really, really nice. It it also kind of reduces reduces this notion that you have to rewrite everything in Objective-C. There are a lot of ways to get around that. So we had had a few questions from Boss, um, but one was... Are there any gaps in Objective-C and Swift Interrupt that you feel would improve Interrupt between the languages? Mm, that's a really good question. Thanks, Boss. Well, let's yeah. first, 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 any any thoughts on that? And then, B, do you think Apple would ever spend time implementing any of those? Oh, I, so I'll start from B because that's easier. I like the easier question. I think they constantly do. I mean, first of all, I think that okay. Apple, are, Apple are still doing a lot of Objective-C themselves. And the second thing is that like there were sessions this year in DubDub about Objective C that were really, really good. So I think, really, that, yeah, it was either this year or last year. I mean, I kind of lost track okay, of okay. time with COVID. Not entirely sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, everything kind of, uh, yeah, everything feels like a big lump of time instead of years <laughs> at this point. Uh, so I'm not yes. too sure. Uh, but yeah, they're still investing a lot of time on it. I think uh, trying to make the interrupt good. I think that the big barrier there is just value types. I don't know if you can really bridge that stuff. But that would be amazing. I mean, uh, that if you it, that you would be able to define something that behaves like a struct in Objective C, but it's just not the way the language itself works, and C itself doesn't have that notion, probably. Well, C has value types, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, mean, it, has, it has value types, but it doesn't have them in the in the sense that Swift has them. They're okay. they're more like a bag of data uh, with structs right. in, in Swift. Yeah. Have, it's can literally have written into memory, like yeah. in in that order. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I think I right. think in, in Swift structs you just have a bunch of capabilities and computed props and, and like generics and a lot of stuff that are like super super nice. And second thing is just there are things that are a bit harder to bridge. Like for example, if you make a, a, an enum in uh, in Objective C. Even if you annotate it when NS typed enum and all this, uh, all this stuff that makes it visible in Swift, then you can't make it case iterable, for example. And it's so you have to yeah. kind of make custom yeah, extensions on that. it. Yeah, so it's like small things. I think that really it's come a super long way. Uh, like super long way. I'm pretty happy with uh, with Angular up there. I think you can do a lot of really interesting things with it today. Yeah, I think like for me, like the the value types really hits it on the head because like. I've been doing some stuff where like I'll write a value type in Swift and I'll just end up like creating a class, an NS object class that has a value type inside it, like basically wrapped. And like, I basically am like replicating the functionality with the same struct type underneath because like, I, I don't want to sacrifice both, but at least I want that value type available in, in Objective-C. Yeah. And like, that's, I agree. The- it's a, it, it's a huge pain. I also think that with Swift, we got spoiled, like because value types are so powerful that you don't have to think about 
corruption of data and stuff and releasing memory and weird stuff like that. So it's like we got so used to that super powerful uh, kind of data type, data structure that it's kind of hard living without it in, in Objective-C. Right. Okay, let's jump into API design tips and tricks. Well, first of all, what is API design in your in your opinion, and how do you cover it in the book? I'm really That's, curious. Yeah, so I, I I always say that API design is probably only second, like for being an opinionated topic, as naming variables. Like it's such an opinionated topic, right? Like you you, you would never find like four person like people in the same room that would have the same opinion about that. But in my perspective. Is about if you are making a piece of code, what is the public interface of that piece of code that your consumers would actually work with? And how do you make it the most pleasant as possible so your consumers can easily discover, play around with it, that it makes sense to them, that it's expected the way it behaves, and that it's easy to maintain and read and all that stuff. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff in there, right? But that's basically how I look at it. Okay. So yeah, we had a we had Ann on Ann Callahan on talking about how like designing public APIs and making it like one of the things that she recommended I really like is like taking a break from it and then looking at it again later as somebody who forgot like what they were working on and that like really opens her eyes into like how like somebody else might look at it as well. You know, obviously code reviews and things like that help uh just getting some that's, that's a really with- amazing yeah, that's a really amazing idea. I think that it's pretty good for apps as well, right? You're, you're always going to have a better idea if you're going to leave it for a week and then come back. You're like, who, who wrote this garbage? Like, oh, I did. Yeah, you know, exactly, right? exactly. Every time. So a couple of things you t- uh, I saw in the book uh, was encapsulation and versioning. You want to explain how those work when it comes to API design? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, when, we're, when we're talking about encapsulation, it's just really a deeper dive into what I just mentioned, which is only kind of share the minimal stuff that your consumer has to know about your API, which is just like, if I want to get some items, then the, the, the consumer would only get a get items method. They don't necessarily have to know what happens inside, how it happens. Are you using combine? Are you using dispatch queues? Are you using async await? Like mostly it doesn't matter. It's implementation details. So I think first and foremost, it's about how you separate between your interface and your implementation details. That's really about encapsulation and so kind of like abstraction like trying to hide stuff that just makes it more complicated than it needs exactly to be. abstraction okay. abstraction is 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 exactly that plus the concept of generalization which is like I'm trying to take a group of properties that are shared amongst a bunch of objects and generalize that under a protocol for example that's kind of more uh, how I look at abstraction depending on how you like what what you use that word for because abstraction is also a pretty overloaded term and for versioning specifically in the in the book we're talking about it in the notion of managing uh, like open source projects or just public projects where the versioning matters where you have semantic versioning and every change you make to the version count is super super uh, critical because you have consumers that depend on different versions and just about knowing what, when to change each version, when each component of the version is uh, is changed, and also a bunch of metadata stuff you can add to the version to kind of semantically help package managers deal with it. So those are two topics I'm kind of talking about in this topic, but it's really more about uh, an exploration. Because it is a very opinionated topic, this chapter is less about, look at how you do all this stuff. It's more about, look at some of these ideas you might not like all of them, but maybe you can gain some inspiration from some of the thoughts we are going to discuss in this chapter. That's kind of how we look at API design in general. It's kind of like a collaborative uh, process. What do you think are some of the biggest mistakes folks make when it comes to versioning? I think it's it's just really easy, especially early along the way, to just give like do a lot of uh, major version bumps or just make breaking changes without properly bumping the, the right version component. For example, if you have someone uh, depending on 1.1 and you change the API completely and release 1.2, they're going to get that update and they would they would not be a happy camper after that. I think that's that's a very that's a very common mistake that I see especially in relatively 
Uh, I mean, you can be a, you can be super expert at Swift and not necessarily have ex- expertise with shipping public libraries, for example, because it's not something that all of us have to do, right? So, or, or even as a consumer, you don't necessarily know. Yeah, I need to think about versioning this way. This project is a bit flaky with its versioning, so maybe I need to pin the specific version number to not count on their bumps. So I think it really varies how you deal with it. Yeah. What I do is I just keep it at zero. And then that way, if I change the whole thing, <laughs> exactly. I'll say, well, it was never, it was never version one. So it's not yeah, my fault. Exactly. I always <laughs> like for, for new, for new project that I do, it's always zero point until, until it's like, yeah, I, I haven't changed this project for a year. It can be a one point <laughs> at this point. Fine. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's painful the other way. Like you made, you made like a relatively minor change, but it's a breaking change. Now, do you bump a major version for this change? It's a bit problematic. Right. So, so you, you kind of, that, that's also a thing that kind of changes between projects, but as, as a rule of thumb, you usually would bump a major version, but rules sometimes have to be broken. It depends really on the, on the realistic uh, part there. You just need to figure right. out exactly. how much breakage it's going to cost. Yeah, right, right. So one of the topics I wanted to discuss, I know it wasn't the topic you wrote about. Who wrote about protocols and generics in your book? Oh, I think it it was Marin Benchevik, if I remember correctly. And if not, then fellow authors, I apologize for uh, misstating uh, the name of the author, but I believe it was him. Uh, okay. It, it did a super cool job on it. I think uh, it was really fun chapters to read. I think like that to me is one of the more advanced topics when it comes to Swift because people have such a hard time understanding. And it took, it took me a while how to use generics and protocols and associated types and how they work, work together. I don't know if you want to give a quick blurb on what you think folks would get. How do I put it? What he does a good job with, I guess, in this book, as far as like explaining this topic and how how it would help developers wrap their head around how to use this when it comes to Swift. I don't know if I can specifically talk to the content of this chapter because I didn't write it, but I, I can talk about why this topic is generally harder to, to, to start with, I think, and how you can kind of get from that hole. I think that generally before typed languages, especially for pe- people coming from Objective-C or JavaScript or Ruby, then you're not really used to thinking in that way. You just have a bag of objects. You put all the objects there. If you need, you cast them later and to make them do different things. But if you want like the compiler to guarantee that, for example, an array of this object, all, all of the items in the array can do that specific action, that's where you really want generics and strongly typed uh, objects. I think that it's really, it's a bit of a difficult concept early on. I remember that initially when Objective-C introduced like closures or blocks, like I had the hardest time figuring it out. I remember actually that Matt Thompson that worked on AF Networking and Elemo Fire answered uh, answered to me on Stack Overflow. It was the first time ever I understood that topic. It was just uh, so crazy back then. So Think first tip, just don't, like don't give up if you think if you like try to mess up like mess with it, those topics and it doesn't click immediately. And the second thing is really thinking that sometimes you don't really need that stuff. It's really when you if you are talking about protocols and generics and the word generic kind of speaks for itself. It's when you want to generalize a problem. For example, there's this open source project I'm doing called Prism that takes like a Zeppelin project and it generates design code in Swift or other languages. And we wanted to add support for other providers as well, uh, for uh, Figma, for example, or for whatever, Storybook. So that's, that's a, a really awesome use case for generics. You can make like a protocol that describes what a specific provider can do uh, and kind of and wrap that around. But you can also make them separate types if that's easier, but it really depends on the, on the domain of the problem and how comfortable you feel. I think that generally... Those language features, I get it a lot from from I guess less experienced developers that you can know that you can know the tools, but you don't always know when to use them and how to use them correctly. And I think that's really the huge challenge of just getting your dirts like your hands dirty enough time to really know uh, how to work with them. And I think that from my recollection, that, that both chapters do a really good job, both on the example projects and uh, 
the materials. So I, uh, I'd recommend checking them out. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's, it's a topic I've, it took me a while to wrap my head around, but once I get the idea that like the way protocols and generics work together is like you said, it's like a suite of types that work together, but all have the same functionality, similar to what you were saying, where you're like with prism, you want to like, I need uh, something for, 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 uh, can't even think of it. Figma, Figma, or like a different graphics uh, suite. Like you have a suite of classes to, to deal with each, each of those cases. Yeah. And it's really about the fact that when you are dealing with a provider, you don't know or don't care who is that provider because it yeah. is hidden behind of this protocol. You just care. It is a provider. It knows how to do this specific set of things. And then each provider to itself uh, like conforms and implements that the uh, specifications. So now we get to, get to the your favorite topic, functional reactive programming. I want to start by asking uh, asking Boss's other question from uh, RX Swift to combine to async stream. What uh, what do you think is the future? of reactive programming on Apple platforms? Oh, that's the big one. That's a million dollar question. The big one, the big one, yeah. Yeah, I love this question. I mean, I I don't like answering it, but it's a really good question. I think that, first of all, I want to start by saying that Arc Swift is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. We're, uh, you know, uh, Krinoslav, who initially built it, spent a huge amount of time on it, and I did as well. And uh, I think it's a super cool project that, does have a lot of differences from combined and other variations. So I think it's still a super powerful uh, framework to this day. I think that the journey is pretty interesting. I think that, like, right, we had Arc Swift that for a long time, folks in the, in the iOS community didn't really care much for reactive programming in Arc Swift or Reactive Swift or Bond or any of these other frameworks. And then came Apple and made their own framework, and then it kind of gained more popularity. I think that looking at this past year, Apple didn't make a lot of changes to Combine, which is a bit disappointing. I think they made a relatively, they made a really solid version of it, but it's still missing a lot of functionality that other reactive frameworks have today. Uh, and I kind of wish that they would spend more time on it. We, I mean, we, we have a few folks. I, I also did a lot of work uh, in the open to have like combined Coco or combined X with a lot of additions to support combined developers, but it's still missing some tools. But really, like my my interpretation of combined is it was really made to support Swift UI. I mean, with stuff like published and all the unobservable object, all this stuff kind of relies on combined to function. Uh, so I think that these two things can really work together easily. And uh, I don't think people, like folks should be afraid of switching from RX to combine as well if they, if it like makes sense for their project and for deployment target and all this stuff. Uh, but there are tools like RX Combine, which are also open source that like let you convert between, so you can still keep working together and convert when the use case makes sense. And then about async await, that's like an entirely huge topic that. We've kind of been waiting waiting for a while for Apple to do that. Like we knew that it's coming, but it's really nice seeing it out there and it's working really well. I think it has a huge benefit of like async stream specifically has this huge benefit that it lets you work like iterate over values in a very native for in loop, which other variations don't. Like you have to either use sync or subscribe or other variations. So I think it's really all of them are the same things. But in uh, but you know the level of support from the compiler and the diagnostics, all this stuff on async ways is pretty pretty good. It kind of keeps you safe the entire hierarchy of tasks. So I think the evolution makes sense, and I think the evolution is great, really. But I think that the existing tools in that evolutional chain are still being heavily used today. I don't think that's going to change for a while. So I think, and the last thing I want to say about RX and combined is that if you know one, then you know the other, which is pretty powerful as well. I mean, the concepts are really similar, just some different names. So it's really the same thing. They're both based off, react, off of uh, reactive streams, pretty much the same concept. So Yeah, and I've been following a lot of the work that you've been doing in, in the reactive world, especially the open source stuff that's out there. I, I don't know. I'll let you go ahead and explain some of the some of the other projects you've been working on when it comes to reactive. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the big ones just Arc Swift itself, which I've been maintaining for the past, I think, two two years, two and a half years, probably. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. 
I think that I spent uh, good a good portion of my time kind of modernizing it, uh, syntax, some of the behavior, stuff like that. But really, it's already a super uh, strong and battle-tested framework that's used by a lot of the, you know, uh, many of the biggest companies in our industry today. So I'm, uh, I'm not um, risking too much there to add uh, crazy functionalities. But for example, now we're adding support to uh, move from uh, from observable to async await that you would be able to await an observable stream, and I think that's like a super natural. Yeah, it's, it's a natural evolution that, that if you are working in the proper deployment target or whenever we get back, uh, like, uh, backporting that you would work on iOS 13, that you would want to be able to use your existing code and be able to use for in, like, for value in observable and just be able to iterate all of your values. That would be really cool. And except for that, I mean, for the open source work I do, I think a lot of it revolves around reactive stuff, not because that's necessarily the only thing that I do, but just kind of community that I, I grew up in in iOS and uh, I have a lot of affinity for it. So a lot of projects around Combine, I think that already into the into the first 30 minutes of the, the dub-dub session when they introduce it, we already... I already kind of made the cheat sheet to convert from Rx Swift, and we already planned how to make the book. So I think this nice. entire, yeah, I think this entire, this entire thing. I mean, I have it hanged here on my wall. This the, the bear. That's the book. So I mean, <laughs> it's it's just a, a cool topic to me because uh, in in many projects where it was done right, in my opinion, it just uh, it just worked really well. So yeah, just every time I see a gap in in combine or in anything else, I try my best to. Uh, make a good project to work around that problem. So CombineX, for example, provides a lot of operators or functionalities that don't exist in Combine, but might exist in ArcSwift or ReactiveSwift or other frameworks. Uh, while you have, yeah, you have Combine Coco that kind of works like ArcsCoco. It lets you um, observe stuff that happens in UIKit components. For example, you can observe a publisher of values from a text fields or taps on a button, and you can, then you can kind of compose all of these different publishers together. Uh, that's something that uh, we don't get natively in Combine because Combine was kind of made for Swift UI, so I don't think they consider UI kit so much. And uh, yeah, just basically stuff around that problem. What, one thing uh, folks have asked about, well, I, I think I know the answer to this one, but like, when are they going to open source Combine? When are they going to open source Combine? Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen, but I know that there's some some projects out there. I don't know if you've worked on any of the ones where they try to make Combine available essentially on older OSs or Linux. Yeah, I think that, I, I, yeah, I, 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 it's a bummer because I really wish that they would. I mean, it would be amazing. I think that if you go to the foundation framework, for example, uh, on, on GitHub, which is open source, like part of it, uh, STLE Foundation, yeah. you can see some publishers in Combine that are themselves open source, like the URL session publisher, that's open source. Right. There are some stuff, but the framework itself isn't, which is a bummer, especially for Linux users. I mean, I would love it if you could use Combine on server for example that would be, that would be pretty awesome yeah so i'd really be curious like how does that work exactly reactive programming because i'm used to doing it all on the ui and as somebody else like how does how what's the use case i guess for you mean for the server you mean for server programs yeah. i mean i haven't done much of it myself generally back in development in the past decade but i have a lot of friends uh, i mean uh, florent pivet which worked with me on a couple of books did a lot of projects with uh, with uh, server side and rx and I think that it's just generally treating it just like flows of data. You can have a, an observable of requests that emits an observable of responses, and you can manipulate it with operators on the way out. So it's really gotcha. about how you model the data and how you treat that. Yeah, and I see like I see async await like that's easy enough for me to understand on the server, especially with like database calls or network calls. But yeah, that's cool to see like there's folks doing the reactive stuff on the server as well. Yeah, I was about to say that with with async await being mostly available on Linux, that would be my natural choice if I would want to do something like that. I think it makes more more uh, easy sense today. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, we talked about something else before switching to uh, to on the server. I don't remember what was it. Lost my uh, train of thought here. Oh, just the open sourcing combine and how that. Oh, works. I just, just wanted to talk about open combine and combinex, which are like amazing, amazing yeah, yeah, projects. Yeah, yeah. yeah th- th- they those are. are like. 
I mean, those are just uh, like two, I think it started off as two separate individuals and then it became huge groups of people. They just wanted to make their own open versions of Combine. And basically what they do is make their own versions of all the operators, publishers, subscribers, and then make test suits that kind of compare the results with actual Combine, uh, which is like a super nice way to build it. I think I mainly think of it as an educational project for me, at least to look at, but... But I think there are some some folks that use it in production uh, to use combining earlier versions than iOS 13. But that's also going to be less and less important over time because we're already with iOS 15. So, I mean, we're already at N minus two, what you would call. So less need for that. Right. Well, my use case, my little pet project is writing a terminal or command line based app and using combine to update the text on the screen. And being able to do that with like a Linux Linux command, that's that's been one of my pet projects I've been wanting to play around with. So that's where it becomes useful. Before we close out, I wanted to let you mention about an uncupping book that you're editing. Yeah, uh, I mean, me and uh, actually Marine Todorov came up with the idea of uh, of doing a book about modern concurrency, which is about basically async away tasks of the new stuff that uh, just came out in Swift 5.5. And we've been hard at work on this book for the past few months. It's gonna come out in a few weeks. Actually, it's one of the like the fastest books we we worked on. I'm I'm editing I'm editing it for him. For, and, for uh, a book on async await, that's awesome that it took so quickly because yeah, I mean we did we did the it. same we did the same thing with combine and it was so much fun. I mean, it was fun because it's like you don't well you don't want to always know don't have documentation as as that's like super solid yet. So it's a lot of exploration, figuring it out. And I think that's really fun when you're creating a, a book or new materials. So so we're going to release this book, a 10-chapter book, uh, in a few weeks. It's going to be super, super awesome. I edited all of it, and uh, I think that it's super interesting. I learned so much just from reading whatever he wrote. And uh, me and Maureen worked a bunch of times together already. So I'm already used to the high quality of stuff he writes. This is going to be a good book. Yeah, I think I think you guys can know what you're doing. Oh, we're trying our best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shai, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Where can people find you online? They can find me on Twitter, GitHub, and Facebook as Freak4PC, for being the digit four. Super, super weird nickname, I know, but maybe on on your next episode, I'm going to tell you the story of that. Yes, yes. Okay, I'm putting that in the show notes. Sounds good. Sounds good. You got it. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. Please take some time to uh, post a review on your podcast player. And if you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe and like. Thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, thank you. Bye.